Shalom, shalom, friends. That's the Osei Shalom version by Debbie Friedman of Blessed Memory. Um, always appreciated that one. Um, hope you're all doing well. Happy 2024. Hope it's a year of good health and blessings for everyone. And this year's off to the right start. And um, what a better way to kick in 2024 than think about Simone, Simone de Beauvoir. <laughs> um, uh, French uh, existentialist of the 20th century. So I'm looking forward to that. Let's start with a little poll question here together. Patriarchal texts in religion are everywhere, and it's a huge barrier for me, option one. Option two, quite common, but I work around them and reinterpret when needed. Option three, not an issue. Important religious and moral ideas generally transcend the gender they emerged from. Okay, let me offer that again. Patriarchal texts in religion are, option one, everywhere and a huge barrier for me. Option two, quite common, but I try to work around them and reinterpret when needed. Option three, not an issue. Important religious and moral ideas generally transcend the gender they emerge from. Okay, very interesting. Nobody said everywhere and a huge barrier for me. 33% said quite common, and I work to around them, reinterpret them. 67% said that the most important ideas can transcend. If a woman is, if an idea is from a woman, um, it's still valuable. It makes no difference. It's from a woman. If an idea is from a man, it makes no difference if it's an important idea. So uh, very interesting. So we will um, we will think about that as we dive in here to Simone de Beauvoir. So friends, what does it mean to be a woman? What are we to make of the thousands of years of intellectual history that have disregarded the experience of women? How are we to move forward in a society built largely on male dominance? By making us consider everything that we've inherited, Simone de Beauvoir was a revolutionary figure for the way philosophers think about human existence. Beauvoir was a French existentialist with a background in phenomenology. Existentialist philosophy rests on an interpretation of human existence in the world that stresses its concreteness and its problematic character. It's a philosophy that struggles to understand what it means to be a person in the world. Her work was wildly controversial, and it was even forbidden by the Vatican. Beauvoir had a long romantic relationship with Sartre, who we already discussed, but she never married and never had kids. Beauvoir was a pioneering second wave feminist philosopher, her famous book being The Second Sex, published in 1949. Beauvoir saw that philosophy for almost all of its history was done from a male perspective. Philosophers who were men used the word man as a substitute for humanity, much like the way the Hebrew word Adam, which can refer to a person of any gender. But in doing so, they had a tendency to see men and not women 
as representative of what it means to be human. This, he saw, was obviously a flawed way of thinking. It leaves out most of the human population. By seeing men as the standard, he argued, women are viewed as equal only in areas in which they are deemed to be the same as men. Beauvoir noticed that even men who have served as allies in feminism relied on the argument that women are equally valuable because they're equally capable. Even for them, the source of female dignity came from women being able to do the same things as men. And so Beauvoir pointed out that men and women are, are different biologically. This makes much of the prior philosophical canon flawed because it ignores the fact that women exist in the universe differently. Whether we're talking about the relationship to the body, to others, or to the world, women have phenomenologically different experiences and spheres of consciousness that are dependent on the social structures that define femininity. To be sure, she wants to transcend gender in the sense that women are existentially free in the same way as men, and society must change to accommodate women rather than limit them. Beauvoir merged the existing feminism into a feminist existentialism. Women did not necessarily choose to be women, but they could choose how they were to interact with the social construct of femininity. Beauvoir saw the immense societal pressure that was put on women to act in certain ways and be certain ways. Similar to the way Sartre saw a waiter in a cafe as playing the, the role of waiter, as we discussed, Beauvoir saw that women are made to occupy the role of women, of a woman, in a way that was not necessary. Beauvoir most famously wrote in The Second Sex, one is not born, but rather becomes a woman. She wanted women to choose what kind of woman do you want to be. For Beauvoir, women should not feel compelled to be like men in order to be accepted. And at the same time, they should not be compelled to be a typical woman in the way it was socially constructed. With this, she was talking not only about the quest for authenticity, but about the strategy for how women can achieve freedom. Seeing the way Beauvoir challenged the fundamental male-centered assumption, assumptions of philosophy, we can be inspired to take the same approach to Judaism, which for almost its entire history was in many ways centered on men and male experience. We can recognize that the Torah was given in a time of deep patriarchy, and it consequently was understood as directed largely, although certainly not entirely, to a male audience. This resulted in men, men being more literate and educated throughout Jewish history. We can think hard about what it means that certain commandments have long been interpreted as being geared towards men. It also must be recognized that even when a woman goes against the long-enforced stereotypes and decides to learn the Talmud more deeply, she must peer into an ancient history of alienation. The tradition is primarily a collection of male voices, and when women are discussed in the Talmud, it's always, almost always from a male perspective. Women are generally taught about rather than being the teachers themselves, of course, with some exceptions. We can ask, how do women deal with this problem of their intellectual inheritance being dominated by male influence and male normativity? 
One option that women can take is to reject all Jewish thought prior to feminist innovation, and perhaps even to reject Judaism altogether, as it inevitably relies on millennia of patriarchal history, like all histories did. However, if you're looking for Jewish wisdom, presumably because the tradition has brought meaning to your life from childhood up through present, this probably doesn't seem like a desirable option. Alternatively, one might want to reject the explicitly patriarchal texts and traditions, but not reject Judaism itself. Women could rewrite the tradition in inventing an entirely new Judaism. This was an approach similar, but more radical, to one taken by Jewish feminist thinkers like Professor Judith Plaskow in Standing at Sinai. If the, way, if the, if the old way is irredeemably patriarchal, women need to create a new way that is fundamentally different. To be sure, Professor Plasco did not want to invent a new Judaism, which she is skeptical of, but she did want to reinterpret the tradition. We cannot just say that women are now equal. Rather, we must do the harder intellectual work, harder intellectual work of reinterpretation. In some ways, this may be even harder for Christians, where gender is inextricably tried, inextricably tied to divinity with a father and a son, right, in ways that Judaism doesn't have a gendered God, although language is gendered. If the tradition writ large was shaped through a male lens, then it must be reimagined as well. And so another related path to take, one we can call egalitarian, might be to reinterpret and retranslate all that's been given to us. We can understand God to be gender neutral, and we can understand the commandments to apply to all pe people equally. That way, women can be brought into the male-centered system as equals. A more traditional option is to uphold all that can be developed, all that had developed under the old system, in which men studied Torah, were the arbiters of Jewish law, and performed the majority of mitzvot in synagogue and elsewhere, while women received little in the way of religious education and had their religious life limited primarily to the home. We can maintain the authenticity of the tradition and build a new feminist path on top of what was already existed. This would be the approach advocated for by Tamar Ross in expanding the Palace of Torah, Professor Tamar Ross. Here she writes about how important it is for Orthodox feminists to retain some sense of gender difference. She wrote, for the, for, for the Orthodox feminist, the Jewish element in her feminism is not merely a description of the nature of the burden of tradition that she must contend with in order to achieve equality. Due to the more complex nature of her commitments and loyalties, she will not be inclined to view the tradition conception of gender as a totally negative affair. Many aspects of her womanhood are cherished elements of her self-identity and communal attachments or serve as signifiers of other values that she has internalized. For her, the sanctification of differences between men and women in Jewish tradition is corroborated by her sense that such differences bear true benefits, despite the risks. So here, Tamar Ross is offering us the idea that from, um, from a more traditional feminist perspective, that there is an asset, not just a loss, to the gendered notion of, of Torah. And there are aspects of Jewish femininity um, that that emerge traditionally that are valuable, not to be abandoned. It's not merely a, a one-sided um, history of patriarchy. There's also 
um, very positive elements of being a Jewish woman um, that have been inherited that we most certainly don't want to rewrite or reinterpret, even though there's a desire for more engagement and leadership. The Orthodox feminists might make halachic arguments for expanding women's leadership and women's participation in rituals, but not necessarily by making egalitarian claims. The goal is not equality. The goal is different, but more empowered leadership. The claims might be about pathways to serve God or about the search for meaning. Of course, different Jewish feminists will choose differently. But regardless of how we go about moving forward in a more equal world, we learn from Beauvoir that it is not enough for a Jewish feminist to only be an intellectual critic. From a distance, we cannot merely critique what exists. The task upon Jewish women is to choose what kind of women they want to be. And the burden on male allies is to provide non-judgmental space for women on their journey of repairing the Jewish tradition to one that honors the dignity and spiritual growth needs of all people. So to be sure, Jewish feminism and feminist critique is, in its most robust form, not just about helping women. Feminist critique can help reveal modes of domination and oppression that affect all Jews. And by becoming active contributors to the tradition, women can help shape it in transformative ways, perhaps even redemptive in that they can resolve problems long thought unsolvable from a more limited perspective. Naturally, this rethinking is also a gift to Jewish men who will learn they need not be compelled to conform to a narrow or common perception of masculinity. Rather, creative options are always open to how one might be a man as well. Men will have the opportunity to discover what it means to be a Jewish man in a way that is meaningful to them rather than just, um, you know, through conformity. As the rabbis explain, there is no person that has not their hour in from Pirkei Avot. Each person we know is created for their own purpose in the world and not simply to conform to the expectations of others, including notions of femininity and masculinity that were passed down to us by others. We are each here to pursue a life that is authentically meaningful to us. Beauvoir teaches us that gender is not a small issue in philosophy and religion. Each of us has the task of truly journeying in the best way to live our role in the world for the sake of equality and liberation and for the sake of our souls and spiritual journeys. As Beauvoir wrote in her book, The Coming of Age, I am incapable of conceiving infinity and yet I do not accept finity. I want this adventure that is the context of my life to go on without end. So friends, to conclude, we see here what it means to be a person who does not accept a predetermined life, but who sees life as something that must be taken on and discovered by each individual. As just a final point uh, in, the, in, the, um, uh, in line with the tradition of Musar, that part of the Musar, the, the ethical character development movement, might ask us here to do some of the hard work of embracing roots, freedom, and the responsibilities that come with freedom to decide, well, what religion am I? What culture am I? What gender am I? And, and what authentically am I? And based upon my freedom, what responsibilities do I take upon myself, right? To say one is um, secular might give birth to certain moral responsibilities. To say one is Christian or Muslim or Jewish 
gives responsibilities both to potentially challenging that community, but also towards supporting that community. And so too, to say I'm a woman or to say I'm a man or the like um, might emerge new responsibilities as well as we may um, as we may discover. So friends, let me pause here and thank you for uh, engaging for the last 17 minutes. And I would love to hear some of your thoughts and questions today. And they should be new questions of 2024, not the questions of 2023. Those are old questions of the past. <laughs> happy uh, New Year. And I'm happy to be back in the States uh, for two weeks from in Israel. I'll come up with something else to say. <laughs> All right, Gary, good. Glad you're back. We accept your wishes for a Happy New Year. And we will gladly hear from you again um, when you are ready to, to share more. Hi, Lauren. Hi. Oh, first of all, Gary, kolakavod for going to Israel and helping out. I, that's that's absolutely wonderful. So kolakavod. Um, I'm just and listening to this, just thinking like I'm 74 years old. Man, have I seen a difference in my lifetime? I mean, professionally, when I started pharmacy, I my class of 72 was like about the first class to be 50 percent female. Now it's mostly female. How many doc female doctors did I see when I, you know, first started working? And it's not unusual now. And in Judaism, it's been amazing. I mean, I, I, my generation didn't have the opportunity to go and study further and take the gap year in Israel and now. And now it's like, it's common among modern Orthodox girls to go do the gap year in Israel and really study and now this modern orthodox smicha um at your sister uh yeshiva you're from yct and you know there's maharat and um and look at some of the most important commentators um on tanakh now like like aviva zornberg it's just you know yael ziegler it's just um it's a whole new world so it it gives me hope. We've come a long, long way. Yeah, thank you, Lauren. Yeah, in your lifetime, um, there was not yet a reform ra rabbi who was a woman, a conservative rabbi who was a woman, an orthodox one. Well, that's not true. There was one reform woman in the um, in Germany earlier. Uh, she's not getting very talked about. People uh, think that Rabbi uh, Sally Priestand is the first, but really she's the second um, out of the reform movement. But yeah, basically... Um, and uh, forget even just rabbis, just the access to learning, as you're talking about massive developments over recent decades. And, you know, in addition to the conversations around political changes, communal changes, communal changes, biases that people have on the political level, communal level, societal level, I think where Beauvoir moves us in addition to those conversations is this existential question of what will I choose to be? Right. And and with my full authenticity. And so one might say, oh, I'm a real Jewish feminist because I study Talmud and women couldn't study Talmud for millennia. Right. Or for centuries. And but that's also before I would push back against that. She say, oh, to be a feminist is not just to do what what you, women weren't allowed to do for centuries. That's just another form of conformity. Right. You have to decide, is that what you are meant to do? Right. Because I know women who started studying Talmud like, actually, I just don't like this. Like, this is just not what I enjoy. I'd rather study Tanakh or spirituality or prayer or something else. So, like, some people think that to be a feminist, I need to be a scholar of Jewish law and Talmud. And for some, that's great. And for others, they don't need that. Just like um, the same conversation for men. Um, 
that that who feel like there's one way to be a man or one way to be a male feminist or whatever the case is, right? How do we not only have human authenticity, but a unique authenticity that's attached to our gender as well? So anyways, Lauren, thank you for celebrating that progress and um, and for raising some of those questions as well. Okay, we're over to Ed and then we're back over to Gary. If you would clarify something on uh, Simone, uh, you said that she never married, never had kids. Um, but I thought that there was this whole issue that she was totally against marriage. You know, Ed, that's a great question. I can't speak to that. Maybe somebody else here can. I definitely heard what you're saying. I just haven't read enough to say um, definitively what her position was. Um, and is that just something you heard or that's something that you like read about? Um, I read about it, but I, you know, it's not like a valid source or anything like that. The, the, the part that I don't recall, and maybe someone here does, is whether she was opposed to marriage for herself or whether she was opposed objectively to the institution of marriage. The way it was posed was she was against the institution of marriage for both the benefit of women and men. Right. Right. I've definitely heard that. And I just don't know if her view ever changed or how her view developed. And I mean, just to flesh out that viewpoint, um, you know, I, and and this is why feminism has been threatening to, to many people, yeah. um, certainly at a time period like that, because they felt like the conversation of break the patriarchy, that conversation or fight the man was not simply we want equality, but a sense of shaking up the foundations of society that are cherished, right? And so you can imagine the Catholic Church or the Jewish institutions being very uncomfortable with radical feminism because they say, wait a minute, like, we are family-centered, we are marriage-centered. If you want to challenge that very foundation, then, like, this is not for us. And, um, you know, and I myself would share that critique as such. Now, do I, do I think that the institution of marriage has had its major problems? Most certainly. Um, marriage has been a limiting factor for many people in many ways. Um, that said, um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm someone who, you know, embraces family values and embraces the positive of, um, um, thank you. Thanks to Glenn for, for weighing in on that. Um, uh, you know, understands the virtues that emerge going back to Musar, the virtues that emerge from, from marriage of loyalty and of devotion and of what can be developed in, you know, building a home. And um, sadly, some of those values have been lost today where um, too much emphasis is placed on looks or on romance or on the whims of the heart and the like. And so how do we kind of return to that? So, but can we have our cake and eat it too is a question I would throw out to us. Could we, could we liberate marriage of its confinement in ways that Beauvoir may have wanted to do um, and yet still salvage kind of what's most cherished there. Ed, you want to weigh in on that a little more? No, that's that's perfectly fine. I just, okay, I Thank wanted to know it. what your thoughts were about that. And, yeah, and, and the last thing I would say is that lib, um, I can't say anything about her view on parenting, but um, I presumably think that like marriage was limiting for women, that she thought parenting was limiting for women, that the, the bulk of the burden of parenting will fall on women, um, that will hurt their careers, that will hurt their general happiness. And even though women may have an innate desire towards parenting on some level, um, 
that the way society has structured it um, will be very limiting. And so uh, um, I don't think she's calling for an end of the human race, <laughs> but I, I wonder what, I'd be curious to know what her views were of, of, of parenting itself. Just reading a Leia's point here. Ah, oh, okay. And there's allegations that she sexually abused younger women. Um, interesting. Um, I, I, I wasn't aware of that. And um, and I, I, I'm curious to hear other people's views on this. I have a, a, a mixed view of allegations after one's life. I don't know if those allegations appeared during her life or after. Oftentimes there's famous people who allegations emerge after they're alive. They can't defend themselves. I both want to honor the victims and their claims and also feel that people should have the right to defense. And that's kind of a diff difficult issue. Um, in any case, um, that that's interesting. So thanks thanks for weighing in on that, Aglaia. I'll jump in. Oh, great, Alex, great. I know, I'm usually quiet and prefer to just listen to all of your ideas, um, but found this class in particular just so interesting. And I just wanted to share a resource out of Pittsburgh. Maybe you all have heard about it, maybe not. Um, but there is a woman named Danielle Kranjek, who she was the senior Jewish educator at Hillel. I'm not sure if she still holds that position. Um, but she came up with a test called the Kranjek test that oh. um, challenges um, educators or rabbis to um, when they're creating source sheets, if there are more than two sources, at least one should be from a non-male voice um, in order to try to amplify women's voices um, and share more diverse opinions. Um, so just thought that fit in uh, nicely to this class. Love that, Alex. That's such a great um, challenge for all of us and certainly me. And I've been aware of that. And, um, and you know, when you're teaching traditional Jewish texts, it can be difficult uh, but all the more so to bring in more modern and contemporary women's voices. So, so important. And uh, yeah, so thank you, Alex. That's, 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 um, and, and Valley Beit Midrash in particular, this uh, ought to be something we really raise up, um, you know, and then the question emerges, how far, how, how, you know, do we keep going with that? Um, there are people who want to ensure we have more representation from people of color in, in text. People want to be sure there's more representation with, you know, uh, people with uh, different abilities um, and also different sexual orientations um, and even the Gentile voices. And so, yeah, so the baseline ought to be at least be given that, you know, over 50 percent of the population be women. And the question is, how do we keep going to make sure that the voices we bring into learning are are uh, are not monolithic and not, and not limiting? Um, one of the things I think people want to see when they walk into a church or synagogue or the like, is there somebody else who looks like me here? Am I the only one in a wheelchair? Am I the only one who's Asian, right? Am I the only one who is 25 years old, right? If, if you walk in and everyone's 80 and white, you might say, oh, is this my place if I'm a 30-year-old woman, right? Um, and so, so too, in learning, people might want to say, is my voice in any way kind of representative? represented here in the conversation. And um, and that's something interesting for us to unpack, you know, psychologically about how we experience that as well, the kind of communities we join and what makes us feel included and how we ourselves make others feel included in spaces that we're a part of. So yeah, Alex, thank you so much. Uh, okay, Gary, yes. Hi, welcome back. Thank you. <laughs> Wi-Fi issues. Anyway, I, I, I think something that you had mentioned or a statement uh, earlier in your presentation about we all bring something to the table. And uh, 
I, I think that's that's an important point, uh, especially in today's society, that uh, either the way we think or the way we act or there's decisions that that we make. Uh, the thing that has bothered me most, uh, and I'm I'm probably more critical than the rest of the group of of people that consider themselves Shomar, you know, Shomer Shabbos uh, on 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 the right side, where where women and men, for that matter, are never given the opportunity to develop or to look at other cultural models, such as more progressive, that that they're they're so shielded uh, that they continue uh, to live the same culture over and over for not not just one or two generations, but multiple generations. And that minimizes, I think, their ability to open their minds to think uh, 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 about not just old times, but modern times. Uh, and excuse me. And fur furthermore, uh, the way they look at uh, the rest of uh, culture and society are down upon uh, look, uh, down upon us because we have a little we have we've opened our minds to say that everybody has, as I, uh, as I said, something to bring to the table. Uh, and and I've mentioned before, I have friends on both sides, right and left. And I go to my friends' homes uh, on the on the right, and they have totally different texts and books on Judaism than than I have. And we can't we have difficulty even discussing issues uh, because they're not even open to reading those texts or those of those ideas. So, mm -hmm. uh, and, and the second thing I just want I got cut off with the liberation of marriage. Uh, uh, I'm sorry about that when Ed was mentioned, but but I think in today's society, I think marriage has been a lot liberated. Uh, now we have uh, not as much as uh, maybe all of society, but families do decide how they want to liberate or not liberate their their marriages. Uh, so I, I, we are making progress where you don't have to necessarily be stuck in a a traditional marriage uh, uh, where now there's male spouses that stay home and take care of the kids and uh, the wife uh, has decided to be the professional so anyway that's all i have great great thanks gary yes you're you're right even if even if there are suggestions that things can go a lot further you're totally right about the progress i mean just looking at divorce and custody laws and division of assets and then looking at the marriage structure itself you're right and in terms of um, some of the some workplace standards and some of the norms around who's caring for kids most certainly changes um, and then to your first point, um, yeah, I, I think you're largely right that people assume everyone is raised in America in a pluralistic, multicultural sense of exposure to many options. But if you're raised in an ultra-Orthodox home as a young woman, um, and you've only gone to Jewish schools, you've only lived in that neighborhood, you've never had a friend who's not ultra-Orthodox, not to mention not Jewish, um, and you don't have any, any Wi-Fi or access to internet, you really have no access to the outside world to kind of choose if you want to stay in that world or not. Mm -hmm. And that's not, not only that world, there's, there's other cultures that have a similar um, kind of approach to avoid assimilation that they wish to completely kind of isolate. And you might say that that's more limiting to the young women than the men, because at least mm -hmm. many of those men will go out into the workplace. And in that workplace, they'll be exposed to some larger world where many of those women will not will not even do that if they're going to have, you know, six to 12 kids um, and, and what that looks like for them. And um, however, I, you know, but I, 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 
I would raise the question, though, of, um, you know, are, are liberal Americans truly exposed, you know, in, a, in a, a way of free choice to traditional societies as opposed to that being rejected? Right. If I'm raised a liberal reform Jew in America, am I really kind of given exposure to what it would be to be an ultra orthodox Jew? Right. Um, in a way that, give, you know, is that's kind of dismissed. Oh, there's these backwards folks. They do these some backwards stuff. They're kind of all bigots and small minded. And you don't want to be a part of that. And they don't like you anyways. And so, are, you know, just like we might say that ultra orthodox person isn't given the exposure to participating in liberal America or participating in liberal Jewish ideas is that liberal you know, young Jew really given exposure to what it would look like to participate in that traditional end. And I think, I think there are different situations, but I'd be interested in hearing your, if you have a Yeah, I, uh, yeah my comment on it is, is I actually agree with that, that uh, to make choices, you have to have, uh, have exposure to all sides. And, and, the, and the secular ultra-liberal Jew has no exposure to orthodoxy either from modern orthodoxy all the way to ultra and and they don't realize what they're what they're missing either uh and i think that 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 is unfair because the person on the left does isn't exposed to that at all they're only exposed to one side just like as the uh, as the other side uh is when i was in israel this week one of my roommates uh 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 very liberal uh on, on the left side is only connected through Judea, uh, connected to Israel. He has no religious connection, but he he made a comment which is kind of which was really very interesting that he's embarrassed by those on the on the right uh, ultra orthodox side. You know the way they dress and the way they act, and you know of course I became the uh, the devil's advocate. But it's exactly what you say. He had no never had exposure to them, and so he doesn't understand what their lifestyle is either. So. I would agree with you. Okay, very interesting. Yeah. yeah, so I think one of our goals here ought to be, and thanks for that comment on the side, Lorna, um, is how do we all struggle to hold on to what we cherish the most while still being open-minded? Because it um, it is scary. It really is scary. If you think about the things you cherish the most for yourself or for others you care about, how we... Um, rethink them and remain open-minded about them while holding them tightly. For example, like if you think the most important thing as a ultra-Orthodox, you know, parent is that your child is close to God, why would you expose your child to arguments for atheism as, as opposed to some way that just dismisses them or, you know, um, you know, um, why would you introduce them to, to that? Or if you're an atheist parent, and you think that the idea of God has just corrupted the human mind and soul for, for millennia, why would you give them a real exposure to religious education, right? That might, you know, and so most people want to take what they cherish the most and really push that other stuff out in their parenting and in their education. And the challenge for all of us, that's what we want to do at BBM is shake things up, is say, no, we don't want to break those things we cherish. We want to hold them tightly, but we still want to think critically about all this. And that's that's a really hard balance. And I want to say it's true politically as well. My gosh, we're so broken as a society. Is it really so hard as a liberal to think about positive virtues that emerge out of conservative thought? Is it really so hard for conservatives to think about about beautiful things that have emerged out of liberal thought? It's like it's all just like, oh, I, I love Trump. I hate Trump. Biden's too old. I, who's 
uh, we need a third party. Like that's as far as we get. We don't even think about values anymore. And like the big issues of our day and, and, um, and, and, and what matters, right? Uh, it's just like we put up our boxing gloves and we don't think about, think about, think about this, some of those issues. And so I hope we can do that. And so too, like it, it, for those of us here, myself included, who identify as feminists, we can still ask really hard questions about, about gender. We don't just have to like sign on to some political agenda or so too, like, uh, like um, I, as a, and as an as someone who wants to engage in anti-racist work myself, I'm not marching anymore with Black Lives Matter. I, I marched with them so many times, but after the Israel stuff, like I'm going to find other ways to exercise my my anti-racist voice. And so, like, there's just a lot of ways to engage in this stuff as opposed to just bandwagoning. So, anyways, um, I missed the public security of a free market in economics. Okay, thank you for for sharing that. Okay, Aglaia, anyways, I know you just chatted, but let's go to you because you've had a hand up. And then we want to hear from Sarah and Steve. Okay, so um, just to, like, this is just a side note, though, but actually, though, um, there, Simone de Beauvoir actually did get her license, her teaching license, revoked because the allegation did come out during her life. Oh, interesting. It was uh, reinstated, though, but she then signed uh, a petition that says, oh, yeah, you eliminate age of consent. So I find myself questioning the parental instincts of anyone who does that. But then again, so did Foucault and so did Derrida. You know, a lot of them did it. So we'll just leave that as a side note. But um, the question that I'm having right now, though, is that um, really, all right, um, what actually, like when she's talking about, you know, everything's been centered on men's perspectives and everything, she also talks about women as an other. And really, honestly, you could put the term other on all manners of different things and everything, though. Um, now, when it comes to marriage, I'm an other. Because, well, if you live in Louisiana and being unmarried at my age and never having popped out kids of your own is really just a freak thing for a lot of people. And how dare you get a Ph.D.? So, I mean, I don't know. Like, I just want to like get to like just, I guess, ask about this. Like, what actually does it mean to be the normal person? I've never been normal. I think probably a lot of people here can relate to not being normal. So what does it mean to be the normal person? Totally, totally. Awesome, Aglaia. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for the, the points around abuse and consent. Um, yeah, I mean, to be sure, like our understanding of age has radically shifted over recent years, but I'm not, not giving a pass at all. Um, but just kind of noting, no, noting that, but which, you know, I mean, a, 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 like sexual relationships with kids, even for the Greeks, you know, um, between teacher and student, um, and as, as it relates to, you know, Beauvoir in that era um, and the gender dynamics, it's something we should think about. And, and I, and I want to read more about, about her engagement with that, because I think that's that, that's really important. Um, and yeah, I mean, I myself am still guilty of, of using the word sometimes normal. Um, I find myself using it and catching myself, you know, with my kids talking about normal. <laughs> and um, it's such a bad word. We, you know, we tell our kids that words for poop and words for our, our be, behind are bad words, right? Uh, you know, but shouldn't a word like normal be a curse word too? <laughs> because what we're really saying by normal is everyone who doesn't fit this certain mold is kind of abnormal. And that's something to be ashamed of in some sense. And um, 
Um, so too with it, as we think about kind of, you know, societal etiquette and the like. So what do you think we should have placed this with, uh, Aglaia? Like, um, how, how, do we, how do we shift the discourse around normal and what should we, you know, reserve that word for and where should we abandon it? I'm kind of not thinking of actually keeping the word, the reason why, but uh, just actually re, I guess, um, reevaluating it. The reason why is because of the fact that there are, unfortunately, and just thinking historian wise, though, unfortunately, though, there are times when things have been considered the normal thing. And that did have huge um, implications for basically everyone, including the normal person. So, for instance, if you're talking about, well, um, how like what ideas are kids exposed to and stuff like that. Well, to a kid who is, you know, growing up in an ultra orthodox community, it's normal. This is the normal thing. And so, but everyone else in the country thinks you are abnormal. So what are the, you know, like, what are the social implications? What are the individual, like, you know, implications for your own, like, way of actually constructing the world? Now, to be honest, um, just going from all of us, okay, just like basically looking at it, um, I would say that in mainstream American society, we're more normal than a lot of people. And I know that we probably don't want to think about it that way, though, but let's just go like, you know, we're not living in an ultra orthodox community. At least I don't think anyone is. So what are the what are the assumptions that we make about people who live a different way because we are the normal people? I mean, you know, so I don't know. I kind of think that the word needs to be reinterpreted as um, I don't know, uh, something as this is a this is like an actual social phenomenon that does cause it's not just like not causing things it is causing all kinds of things you know? i think that you know i don't know if any of you listen to stand-up comedians um but i think that one of the things that um, stand-up comedians try to do is take things we take for granted as being normal and kind of evaluate them in a way that's so comical because we see how absurd it is the things that have just become normal to us um normal way normal ways of thinking or normal ways of participating in society in ethics we talk about the normative and the normative means kind of the norms or behaviors that are considered standard or acceptable you know largely and um there is something positive to the you know to the um you know to the brain's desire to uh, identify what is is considered normal and to try to conform to that Right. Part of the way we think of education is, is the socialization process that kids learn what's acceptable behavior and what's not. Do I stand up in the middle of class and scream or hit the kid next to me? No, you don't do that. Right. Do I tell someone what they think of their clothes if I don't like it? No, you don't do that. Right? These are things that will, you know, have consequences. Mm -hmm. And so without socialization, you can't learn some of those the, some of those, uh, you know, normative behaviors. And so and yet, as you know, as Aglaia wisely raises, like there's a real, there's a real issue. I mean, part of, part of the, part of the, um, the, the dimension of racism in America is the sense that being white is normal. And if you, if you talk differently as a, as a, as a black person, if you have different hair or you dress differently, then that's abnormal, right? That's something that doesn't confine to white America. And we might ask ourselves, or again, going back to Beauvoir, that male is normal 
and and that which doesn't line up with kind of a male way of being might be considered unprofessional in the workplace or might be considered abnormal right and so that's something again um we should all just kind of think about today as we're interacting with things what's what's considered normal and and why is that yes ed hop in here just yeah. wanted to um inject a little uh i guess a bit of philosophy if you will that i've heard um and if you have a choice of two you are facing a dualistic issue um, as presented, you know, it's either got to be true or false. It's got to be yes or no. It's got to be good or bad. It's got to be normal or abnormal. And that philosopher basically said, if you are posed with a dualistic choices, that is two, mm. you have a false dilemma because that doesn't exist. What exists is everything in between, like Musar would say, this is the definition of uh, loving kindness. And they had a tough time trying to describe that. But, so they used the radical different end and said, this is not loving kindness. And how are we then supposed to act to be a good person? It's going to be somewhere in between. And it's going to be situational. So you end up having to define, define it yourself. And we typically say, okay, well, that's normal then. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody else that's even the slightest away from that is abnormal. Mm -hmm. So I think you run into this false dilemma if you're trying to define truth versus false, good versus evil, without considering that there's what? an infinite amount of points between those two extremes. And um, I think it's good to, to, to have to struggle with that. Uh, on the other hand, I don't know as you could say then that this is bad or this is good and make mm -hmm. that judgment on somebody else. You can maybe say to yourself that, well, that wasn't my standard, so maybe that's abnormal. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, I think you run into this false dilemma mm -hmm. of saying it's either got to be you either got to be a Democrat or a Republican. <laughs> you either got to be a reform or orthodox. <laughs> you know, the, what about the people in between? Right, right, right. Yeah. And I, I appreciate that so much. We are so trained to think by, in binary thought. And it's so hard to break out of it. And we all, we all might think about how we do and, and, and I love how I use this against my kids. You know, if I want them to eat dinner, um, the question is not, do you want to eat dinner or not eat dinner? The question is, oh, would you like to eat dinner now or in three minutes? Right? Which, right? Because I've now framed for them two choices that both work for me. And we might do this often in the world, you know. But we might ask ourselves, like, how do we, how do we, uh, like, clean our brains of this need to 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 fit in boxes and and think in binaries and so too politically that sense of either you're an ally to me or you're an you're you're in opposition right my gosh are those really the only two options and, you know either you think exactly like me and are are lined up for everything i think or you're opposed to me so we need to really clean this up for ourselves and um in our own hearts and in society around how we talk about ideas.
Um, so thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, Sarah, hi. Hello. So, um, so many things have been raised that are so interesting to me. Um, we'll go from what Ed was just saying about binaries um, and why do we need them? Well, it's comfortable. It's easier. It's, we, we aren't challenged to actually think or expand our universe. We aren't invited into curiosity, which is one of my favorite Musar mm -hmm. principles. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that, because that's challenging and we want something that's safe and easy. Yeah. When I think about norms and as we started to talk, I thought, well, okay, so the norm in the early 50s was a very slender body. Now the norm is obesity, if not morbid, going towards morbid obesity. That's become a norm across our nation. It's like, what? It, I, it, it's mind blowing to me. I thought also about how in the 50s, 60s, the middle class, the working middle class that was able to own a home and support their family, that was a norm. Now, it's not. The norm is incredible uber wealth or poverty and homelessness. These, these are not norms that my heart can handle. Mm -hmm. So um, norm is not something that I'm going to buy into. On the issue of religious um, exploration, I'm, I guess I'm really excited at the notion that for so long, we've looked at uh, interracial, interrelations between different religions and exploring that and how can we work together while what we are desperately in need of is that intra-religious exploration, whether that is within Judaism, but also within Protestantism. And the Catholic Church is widely divided, Islam widely divided, and yet we are so polarized that it leaves those of us those of us on the outside not only confused but resistant to anything that is not mm -hmm. us or our norm right those are my thoughts thanks awesome awesome sarah thank you so much for all of that and before i give steve the last word um I just, um, I did the one point, I, I mean, I, I, it was all wonderful, but just what, to amplify your first point around Musar, around getting more curious. I think um, if we can do anything in this learning that we're doing together each week, it is not to come out with conclusions or I like this philosopher and I hate this one, but is just to be more curious about life and ideas and more um, engaged in that exploration about everything. And my gosh, if I, this is also good for our mental health. If Try today taking three things that annoy you. And instead of just letting them annoy you, get curious about them, right? Those, th those things that annoy us, I'm sure we all have many, maybe you have fewer than me, <laughs> things that annoy you. Just instead of just letting it agitate you and you kind of fighting it, say, how can I get curious about why, what this thing is and why it's annoying me and what's going on here? And um, 
it is uh, an exciting way to learn and grow and, and be in the world. So thank you, Sarah. Hi, Steve. Hi. Uh, as a person who you probably know doesn't believe in a personal God, uh, I, I have adopted, I, I shouldn't say doesn't believe in a personal God, doesn't believe in the traditional uh, God. I, I have adopted evolution, eternal, e eternity, eternal and and the infinite as as my god that things are constantly changing and to me the norm is the the knowledge that things change and the willingness to adjust to change mm -hmm. and i i kind of practice my profession in that way the stock market i come to conclusions i think i'm right but i know that i haven't been often enough to be adamant and and i have to be willing to change Mm -hmm. A football team has a game plan bef before the game, and if things don't work out that way, you have to change. The norm to me is is coming to a decision about things, but the willingness to change and adapt to different behavior. Mm -hmm. Beautiful, Steve. What a great way to frame our 2024 and how we can embrace that change. Here, I, 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 I mean, I want to be gentle with people because I do feel a lot of people feel very lost in, in rapid change in the world. Um, and I think gender is kind of a hook of security for some, you know, that sense a sense of self, who am I? And I feel lost and things are changing fast. And I think that's part of what we're seeing around the big fight against trans people, because everything's changing so fast. Don't take away this thing that feels like such a source of stability for me. Right. Like this, I need this binary. And so I want to both honor people's need for a sense that some things aren't changing. Some things are going to kind of remain the same in them or around them. And I most certainly want to embrace what Steve is saying here, that everything is always changing. And the more we can lean into that um, as learners and as adapters um, and rather than just resist it, um, the more fill in the blank we're going to be. <laughs> so I wish us all that blessing in this coming year that we can hold on to what we cherish and love and also continue to adapt and grow and learn and be curious. See you next week. Have a great day. Thank you so much for being here.